Welcome to Looking for Lincoln Stories, a podcast about people, events, and places of Abraham Lincoln's life and times. These narratives of real-life events paint a picture of the vibrant history of the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area. This episode is entitled, John Anderson's Fight for Freedom. This dramatized account of a freedom seeker who fled slavery in Missouri in search of liberty in Canada, the challenges that befell him and his legal fight against extradition to the United States. The narrative is based on actual historical events, but the dialogue is imagined and incorporates details recounted by John Anderson and other sources. Please the court. I am the attorney for the accused, Mr. John Anderson. We are here to appeal the decision made earlier by the courts of Canada that would send my client back to slavery and certain death in the United States. I wish to have Mr. Anderson take the stand as my first witness. May I proceed, my lord? You may proceed, but I caution you against any histrionics in my courtroom. I will decide this matter on the facts not on the public opinion here in Canada, in the United States, or in Great Britain. Thank you, my lord. I shall stick to the facts. Mr. Anderson, do you solemnly, sincerely, and truly declare and affirm that the evidence you shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do so declare and affirm. Thank you. Please state your name. I am John Anderson. Are you known by any other name? My original name was Jack Burton. That was the name I was given when I was born into slavery in the state of Missouri in the United States in 1831. It was the last name of the man who owned me and my family. My father escaped slavery shortly after I was born, and my mother was sold to a plantation in Louisiana when I was young. So by the age of seven, I no longer had my parents, who were also named after our owner but I kept the name for a while anyway. Please describe your life on the farm of your owner, Moses Burton. When I was a child, I used to be the playmate for the Burton's daughters. That put me in good standing with the Burton's. So when I was sent to work in the fields, I was put in charge of the other enslaved people working the farm. I was also given a small piece of the land where I could grow and sell my own crops. But things changed when you fell in love and married 19-year-old Maria Tomlin, is that correct? Yes, sir. Maria's father had purchased his own freedom, but he couldn't purchase freedom for Maria. That man inspired me, and I swore to Maria that I would buy her freedom and also my own. I love Maria so much that I spent more and more time with her, but that took me away from my duties on the Burton farm. That made Master Burton upset and he eventually sold me in August 1853 to Colonel McDaniel, who lived quite a ways away on the other side of the Missouri River. How did Colonel McDaniel treat you? Very badly. He was a cruel man. I asked him if I could visit my wife and children back at the Burton farm, and he refused. The Colonel made it clear to me that I would never see Maria or my children again. That man told me I ought to find a new wife and start making new little slave children, which is what he purchased me to do. 
What did you do then? Never seeing my wife and children again was too much for me to bear. On a Sunday in late September 1853, while the colonel was on an errand, I took a mule and started riding toward the Burton farm. I wanted to say goodbye to Maria and our children and tell them of my plan to take the Underground Railroad to find freedom in Canada. What happened after you saw your wife and children to say goodbye? A couple of days after I left Maria and the children, I encountered a farmer and a slave owner named Seneca Diggs. He was also a bounty hunter, but I didn't know that at the time. He asked me for my pass, which is what all black people must have that allowed them to legally travel without their masters in Missouri. Of course, I didn't have one. I could see a little smile cross his face, and he asked me if I'd like to have dinner with him. I'm no fool. He didn't want dinner. He wanted me and the bounty he would earn for catching me. So I immediately ran away just as fast as I could, and he sent his slaves to try and catch me. I stayed ahead of them for quite a while until I turned a corner and ran right into Mr. Diggs himself. I know this will be difficult. But the judge needs to hear this because it is central to this court case. What happened after you ran into Mr. Diggs? I stabbed him twice with the dagger I was carrying. I will not tolerate any outburst like that in my courtroom. Counselor, you may resume questioning the witness. Thank you, my lord. Mr. Anderson, why did you stab Mr. Diggs? I knew that if he caught me, I'd be severely beaten, branded, maimed, and probably sold to slavers in Louisiana. I wasn't about to let that happen. So you felt you were defending yourself? I certainly did. What did you do after you stabbed Mr. Diggs in self-defense? I had to keep running because his men were still chasing me. But I was in much better shape than they were and they finally collapsed from exhaustion. I then made my way back to Maria and my children and told them what had happened. But I knew the bounty hunters would look for me there, so I had to leave right away to resume my flight to Canada. That was the last time I ever saw Maria and my children. And Mr. Diggs died from his wounds on October 11th, 1853? That's what I understand. That made me an even more wanted man, an escaped slave and a murderer in their eyes. I had to run for my life. I was nearly caught several times even though I traveled only at night and avoided main roads as often as possible. I stole a boat to cross the Mississippi River to get to the free state of Illinois. But Illinois wasn't really a free state for you, was it? No sir. Because of the law, I could still be captured and return to Missouri as a fugitive. But some kind people in Illinois, some abolitionists, hid me fed me, gave me a place to sleep, and got me on the Underground Railroad. I arrived in Detroit, Michigan in November 1853 and quickly crossed the border into Windsor, Ontario. I had finally made it here to Canada. Were the people in Windsor helpful to you? Yes, sir, they were at first. I found work as a laborer with a great western railway and put myself through school. I met a teacher who offered to help me contact my wife. In April 1854, I got a letter that said my wife Maria was coming to visit me across the border in Detroit. But that was a trick, wasn't it? Yes, sir. It was really some bounty hunters who were trying to lure me back into the United States. I tried to stay ahead of them, but those people were very persistent. 
They tracked me all over southwestern Ontario. I kept moving, changed my name several times, and then just disappeared for six years. But you couldn't rest easily, could you? No, sir. Even though Canada had abolished slavery in 1833, things had gotten pretty stressful here. After the United States passed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, a lot of black folks like me fled from American slavery and wound up in Ontario. The white people of Ontario didn't like that so much. But you kept your head down and were safe for a while? Yes, sir. I made my way to Caledonia, Ontario, learned some building trades, and bought some property. But then I opened my big mouth and told my story in 1860 to someone I thought I could trust, a fellow named Wynne. That man promptly betrayed me to a justice of the peace who arrested me. I got released for a lack of evidence, but the word was out and the bounty hunters descended on the area. I was arrested again in September 1860 when those bounty hunters scrounged up witnesses who said I murdered Mr. Diggs in cold blood seven years ago. Then, just four days later, I found out that the Secretary of State of the United States had asked the government of Canada to return me to Missouri to stand trial. My lord, a point of law here, if I may. You may proceed, but keep it brief. Thank you, my lord. As you know, when the American authorities asked that my client be extradited, they did not indicate that he had been enslaved at the time the alleged crime of murder occurred. Therefore, the government here in Canada believed that Mr. Anderson was a free man who had committed murder. The Webster-Ashburton Treaty between the United States and British North America clarifies the issue of extradition. Slavery was not legally recognized in Canada in 1860. Therefore, those escaped slaves who had reached freedom in Canada were not extradited back to the United States to stand trial for the various offenses such as stealing food to feed themselves. They were said to have committed those offenses during their flight to freedom. Mr. Anderson was not a free man when he allegedly committed a crime in Missouri. He was a slave. He only became a free man when he escaped here to Canada. Although murder qualifies as a reason for extradition, the American authorities conveniently left out the fact that the alleged killing was committed when Mr. Anderson was fleeing the evil institution of slavery. The record shall reflect those facts, and I should note for the record that your client's case caused a national sensation here in Canada. The potential extradition of a formerly enslaved man who had found his freedom created quite a stir in newspapers, both here and in Great Britain. My judicial colleagues dispatched police to guard the jail he was kept in, because it was feared that anti-slavery mobs would break him out. You may proceed, Counselor. Thank you, my lord. Mr. Anderson, what was the outcome of your extradition hearing? On December 15, 1860, the Court of the Queen's Bench ruled that I should be extradited to Missouri. It was a 2-1 split decision. The only dissenting justice argued that the desire to be free was a natural condition for all people and that it was only reasonable for an enslaved person like me to do all that they could to free themselves. And we are here in court today because that court's decision is being appealed? Yes, sir. My lord, I argue that based on what you have heard here today, my client's alleged crime in Missouri all those years ago was not murder.
It was manslaughter, a killing brought on by extenuating circumstances through the evil institution of slavery. And because it is manslaughter and not murder, and because he was never formally charged with murder in Missouri, his extradition does not fall under the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. I hereby request that you deny the extradition and free my client to resume his life here in Canada. Hello, those of you who are listening in more than a century and a half later on this extraordinary judicial hearing. I'm not going to leave you guessing about the outcome. John Anderson regained his freedom permanently on February 16, 1861, when this Canadian court denied the extradition request. On that very same day, President-elect Abraham Lincoln was on his train trip from Springfield, Illinois to Washington. He, like many other Americans, was undoubtedly following this case. The Anderson ruling led to public celebrations across Canada, and Anderson made many speeches and visited with supporters after his release. Laws were changed in both Canada and Great Britain to prevent a similar situation from reoccurring. Anderson sailed in the spring of 1861 to meet with his abolitionist supporters in Britain. At about that time, the first shots of the American Civil War were being fired and the British would end up helping the Confederate cause by continuing to send arms and supplies to the South. British abolitionists featured Anderson at numerous public events, but they also insisted that he return to Africa, even though Anderson had never lived there. Anderson was not happy about emigrating to Liberia, but he didn't have a lot of options and accepted the second-class passage there bought for him by British abolitionists. On Christmas Eve, 1862, Anderson set sail for Liberia to start a new life. There are no records of what happened to him after his arrival there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Looking for Lincoln Stories, brought to you by Looking for Lincoln and the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area. This episode was written by David Blanchett, directed by Heather Fieser, and edited by Stephen Varbel. Narration was provided by Connor Cantrell, Gus Gordon, and Reggie Guyton. Looking for Lincoln Stories highlights people, events, and places from Abraham Lincoln's life and times. These real-life narratives paint a picture of the vibrant history of the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area. To learn more about the area, visit lookingforlincoln.org.